All right, let's go ahead and I would invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bible to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I do hope you brought your scripture with you because we are not printing all of Hebrews 11 in your insert. That'd be too much. Uh, but it is our fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Again, Advent just is from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And so we're just going to spend one more Lord's Day saying from the book of Hebrews, what does God's word tell us we should be waiting for? And what does it look like to be waiting on the arrival of Jesus to make all things right? So we're going to look this morning at waiting by faith. Um, so let me pray and then we'll jump in together. Father, hear us now. Would your word be effective and would you use it in the lives of every individual that's hearing this, whether they're physically in this room or in this building or at home, we just ask that you'd nourish us by it. Lord, I know that um, these, are, these are hard times for many and having faith at all feels like work, but I thank you that by faith we can know the promises as though they are fully realized already. By faith, we can know our sins are forgiven. We can know that you have drawn near to us. We can know that we'll live forever with you even though we wrestle and we wait. And so I just pray that this morning, you know what's going on in the lives and the hearts of people in this room that are hearing this. You know where there's anger and pain and sorrow and distress, exhaustion and apathy. And would you minister to us by your word this morning? Give us something to sink our teeth into that, that will nourish us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read to you a few verses from Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling down. He raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. That last line, I just want you to think with me. You, God, the psalmist says, God, you satisfy every desire of every living thing. And those who find their faith in you will not forever be unsatisfied. And so I don't know for what you desire. I can make assumptions we probably share some of the same longings and desires. Some of us may have very unique ones that are so per particular to your own story that no one knows really what you desire. But I want you to think with me about whether or not you bring your every desire to the God who says, I'll satisfy all your desires. Have you, do you do that? Honest desires, whatever they may be, they may be a desire for peace, a desire for strength, a desire for no more guilt, a desire for energy, a desire for forgiveness, a desire for power to work where you can't work. You've tried and it's not there. Maybe to change another person's heart or to reconcile a relationship. A desire, every desire that you know that you are unsatisfied in, have you brought it to God? We're going to start there because as we think about Advent and Jesus' coming, think of these words from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. He's born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. It's fascinating to think about the gospel promises that the desires of every nation 
The desires of every ruler who's wanted power or wanted something to be a kingdom that's right, the desire of every individual heart will find its resting place in Christ. And that's where we sit this morning, this Advent. And so I would ask you, do you give God your desires in prayer? Let me ask it this way. Do you do so so much that you can almost already see your desires being met? Okay, so I'm not saying lobbing up hopeful needs to God and yes, I give him my desires and I throw all the insatiable realities of my life up his way. No, I'm, I ask it this way. Do you do so with such faith that you can already see him satisfying your desires? The reason we're going to go there is because that's where Hebrews chapter 11 takes us. Faith is seeing something that's unseen. It's giving God your desires and entrusting them to him so much so that you believe all the things he's revealed and you actually see the desire you have being met even though it's not met yet. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let me ask you to stand. I, I put in your insert verses 21 to 20. You can stand. Go ahead. We'll read the text. Uh, I put in your insert verses 21 to 23 of chapter 10 and then some of the verses that are summary-like in chapter 11 and we'll then explore the whole chapter as we go forward. This is God's word. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen may be made out of things that are visible, are invisible. And without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been looking over the last three Sundays. We have a great high priest. He's seated at the right hand of God. We looked last week, and I, I hope it wasn't too casual, but tongue-in-cheek, you have this image of Jesus is waiting to reign over all his enemies. His feet are up. He's sitting there resting beside the throne of God. He's interceding before us, but he's done with his work till he comes to reign. There's no other offering for sin required, and the text says, let us draw near to him in true full assurance of faith. What is faith? I printed a definition for you from the scholar F.F. F. Bruce. Faith consists simply in taking God at his word and directing our lives accordingly. That's faith. Faith is taking God at his word and directing our lives accordingly. So faith takes the invisible things that are unseen and then acts as though they are visible. Okay? If we try to explain this and unpack it, faith is, is you and I living and breathing and praying in total dependence on promises God has made to us that are also defined by the reality that he's given to us. We, we believe in a reality that he says is ours. Like we're, we're sojourners in the kingdoms of this world, but we're citizens in his kingdom of heaven right now. Can you see that? Can I see that? No, but the realm of the unseen becomes seen by faith. And so the text explains it 
course, big Bible picture, faith, we have to understand as we talk about it, faith is a gift, right? Faith is not a work that you or I can create or manufacture on our own. Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift. Not that anyone can boast in it. Faith is a gift from God. This text describes faith and says faith is, a, is, is the assurance of things hoped for. I put this in my weekly email to you. I hope you get that. But the Greek word for assurance in other parts of the scripture, that same Greek word is used to describe substance. So some of your Bible translations may say faith is the substance, not the assurance of things. It's a substance of things hoped for. And that starts to help us unpack the, the meaning of the word conviction. So faith is actually experienced the unseen realm as though it's substantial as opposed to something that I just can't quite see. I can be convicted of it as something that's real because by faith it, it is real. It's substantial. So I cannot see my sins substituted for on the cross of Christ. But by faith that is real to me. I cannot see that I am living and you are living fully in God's kingdom right now and it is the same kingdom that Jesus is going to come and set up and will reign righteously with him. I cannot see it without faith, but if I have faith, I see it as though it's already here. We could go on and on. I cannot see and I did not see God create the world by just a mere word out of nothing. But by faith, I see it as real. I understand it as truth. And so faith takes God at his word. One of the things that Hebrews 11 helps us understand straight away is faith is not a feeling. Faith is a submitting. Massive difference, right? The text says, verse 3, that faith is an understanding or faith is a knowing. You have those words. So verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created out of nothing, just the word of God. Faith understands and submits to that which has been revealed. By faith, we understand that God exists in the first place. We don't necessarily even feel that he exists in the first place. Of course, that comes along with understanding. But faith is a knowing. By faith, we know that he will reward those who seek to draw near to him. It's not something that we can bank on with, with feelings that we know are fleeting and so I want you to think with me how faith takes God at his word on things we cannot see and says, I know them to be true. And now think of all the different themes in scripture by which that has to be true. Creation, fall, the fall of man and all of its consequences. Redemption through Jesus. But I wouldn't lay hold of that unless the spirit enabled my heart to do so. And yet the father would receive us who by his spirit repent of our sins through Jesus with tender mercies, Right? So there I just referenced the Trinity. I have to believe that by faith. It's real. One God, three persons. It's why we're relational. We can make sense of things because of it, but we must believe it as though it is as real as day, even though we can't see it with our physical eyes. And we could go on and on. Sin, holiness, present, eternity, all of it. We take hold of it by faith. Natural man cannot conceive of these things and will not. First Corinthians chapter 2. But the one in whom the Spirit works makes what is unseen into the seen and makes it real. Years ago, I remember sitting in a presbytery sermon, which I'm a presbyter, but presbytery sermons aren't always the most thrilling sermons to sit through because there's lots of business to do and let's just, let's talk to, we're preaching to the choir, let's just do good theology. And then we sit down and now we have our business to go through. It just happens that way. 
But I'll never forget, I was in Pennsylvania and I heard a pastor preach on whether or not we as ministers of the gospel see a different reality with the spirit eyes that we've been given. Or do we just keep seeing things with the eyes of our physical body, interpreting all the things with our tangible methods of interpretation, and then run back to the Bible and ask, oh, how are we supposed to interpret it? I forget, I forget, I forget. As opposed to everything we see is driven by God's spirit, interpreted by his word, and we almost have spirit eyes. We actually see the world differently. That's what's being said to us in Hebrews 11. We wait for Christ to return, and we see everything differently. In fact, the reference to creation in verse 3 is almost an illustration, right? Because God made the world out of nothing, so the seen came out of the unseen, and then that's the point the author's making about faith, isn't it? Faith takes what is unseen, and you live as though it is seen. So you have a very illustration embedded in verse 3 about God's way of creation, all right, so we're going to jump into Hebrews 11. Here's what Hebrews 11 does, and I, and I won't spend time on a lot of these people here, but they basically are presented to us as examples and illustrations of how people that are full of faith, while they wait on God to work, they take him at his word and they act accordingly. And so let's just go through this list. What does faith look like? Well, for Abel, remember Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, by faith, Abel gave a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. God received it as righteous. Now, we recall that Abel brought an offering of the first of his flock, and his brother Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. Abel's offering was received by God. Cain's was rejected. Now, it's caused people to ask the question, well, what was, why was Abel's offering better? Is it because it was a sacrifice of an animal? Is it because blood was involved? Well, you've got to let the text of Scripture say what it says and not say what it doesn't say. Nowhere in the book of Genesis are we told that God received Cain's offering because it was an animal with shed blood. We know the sacrificial system will be revealed. We know that there's no salvation apart from the shedding of blood. But in Genesis, right there at the very beginning, we're given no indication why God said, Abel, your offering is righteous, but Cain, yours is not. Except we are given an indication right here in this text. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, by faith it is impossible, without faith it is impossible to please God. So whatever Abel chose to offer, how and why did he give it? He gave it in faith. Because that's what makes one righteous in God's sight. So therefore, Abel's offering was given to honor the God who'd made him. To recognize what he couldn't see, but what his parents perhaps had taught him. He took what was revealed in God's word and he acted accordingly. And God calls that faith and it makes one receivable by God. Verse 5, Enoch by faith, Enoch walked with God, and the scriptures say, and then he was not. What a peculiar man. He lived 300 years. He's the father of Methuselah, son of Jared. We know very little about him, but we know that he just went to be with God. And the text of scripture says that he walked with God, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, you know how that sentence is translated? He walked with God. It's translated this way. He pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we don't know that much about Enoch, but we know this. He must have had a life that was patterned after taking God at his word and believing him and acting accordingly because that's the person that God receives as pleasing or as righteous. Verse 7, Noah, by faith Noah took God at his word and he directed his life for his family accordingly. What a strange man Noah must have looked like to the people around him. 
right? I mean, he, he saw un, unseen things, plain and simple. He understood them to be real as day, though there he was inside, inside on dry land, acting, building an ark. He's crazy, so he must have looked, but he wasn't crazy because Noah knew something, didn't he? By faith, I think to Noah it was virtually raining while he was building the ark. So substantial was what he had internalized from God's word of promise. We know Genesis 7 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, righteous of, among all in his generation. What does that mean? Why'd God choose Noah? The author of Hebrews is making a very simple point. He must have been a man who had a pattern of taking God at his word and acting accordingly, period. For that's the one that God considers to be righteous. Verse 8, Abraham. A lot more time is spent in this chapter on Abraham and Moses. We'll get to Moses in a moment. But by faith, Abraham was told to go where? He didn't know. Just go. And he went. He took God at his word. He believed God. And Genesis 15, verse 6 says God counted it as righteousness. He took God at his word and he went. He sojourned living in tents to a land he literally did not know when he would get there. And yet this text says, you know what it was like by, by faith for Abraham? He could see the foundation of the city that he was walking toward the whole time he was walking. Because faith took what was unseen and made it seen. The text continues, by faith Abraham and Sarah were promised descendants when it was biologically impossible. They were given a promise. You're going to have offspring, as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. And we know that in Genesis 18, Abraham's old wife, she just laughed at the thought. Of course, they had a son named Isaac, and the name Isaac means he laughs. But what our text is saying is not look at how little faith Sarah had when she laughed at God. It's not what the text says. Actually, the text makes us wonder. She and Abraham must have believed God and acted accordingly, if you get what I'm saying. They had to have. For they saw God give them Isaac as a son. They had doubts, stressors, comical nature of it all. They had to have acted accordingly and the Lord honored that. And we're told in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. He gave God the glory, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He took God at his word and acted. We keep going. Verse 17, Abraham offered up Isaac, his son. This is in Genesis chapter 22. If you're familiar with that story. Right, so Abraham is, is told, you're going to have offspring, as, as many as the sand on the seashore, but I want you to take your one son that I've given to you, I want you to go to the mountain, and I want you to offer him up to me. Never mind the fact that this doesn't even seem right, nor does it seem consistent with the character of God, and how in the world can God keep his promise if I do this? Many have talked about Abraham's inner turmoil. What do I do? What do I do? And I was blown away by a small statement in a commentary this week. There is no internal distress that we see in the heart of Abraham in the Bible. The impression in the biblical narrative is that Abraham treated this as God's problem, not his own. It was for God, not Abraham, to reconcile his promise with his command. Wow. 
You know, the text here in Hebrews goes far enough to say Abraham even considered in the midst of it that God would raise his son from the dead. Well, where do we see that in Genesis 22? Well, verse 5 of Genesis 22, as Abraham's about to, Abraham's about to go up to the mountain with his son Isaac, they turn back to his servants and he says, we're going to go give the offering God has commanded. We will come back to you. Now, how can Abraham give the offering God commands and fully obey it, and then we both come back to you? It's not Abraham's problem. That's God's to decide. And so we have Hebrews 11 saying perhaps Abraham was one of the first in all of Scripture to believe in the resurrection of the dead of his own son. The chapter just keeps on going. Abraham took God at his word and acted accordingly. Well, what about his progeny? Verse 20, 21, 22. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. I don't want to spend time in that too much, but you do know of these three men that at the end of their lives, they each blessed their own sons with the promise God had given to them. And the text pulls out Joseph as an example and says, you know, Joseph lived a great life in Egypt. His whole life from like age 17 on was in Egypt. But before he died, he said to those who were going to care for him at his death, take my body back to the land because you know who I really am? I'm a recipient of promises. That wasn't a feeling for Joseph. It would be really nice if I lay down with my family in the same graveyard. That's not a feeling that he was, it was a submitting to what God had revealed. Faith takes God at his word and acts accordingly all the way to death. The text keeps going and gives us Moses. Verse 23, by faith Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the comfort and the pleasures and certainly the pagan lifestyle that he had access to in Egypt. All the wealth, anything he could have wanted. And the text goes back to Moses' being a, a young child and says, by faith his parents hid him in the reeds. Interesting enough, this is one of the places where it's not just Moses' mother, it's his parents, plural. Secondarily, it's not really amplified how they had faith, but we can only know this. They took God at his word. What's God's word? Life and death are his. That's the word. And so we're actually gonna put our child into the reed and just see what God does because we're going to take God at his word that he'll protect his people. And so we see them do so. And then we fast forward and we, re, we see Moses. Again, he's choosing not to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter with all the prestige and the privileges. He chooses rather, as he grows into young adulthood, to be aligned with the people who'd received real promises from God, even though they weren't seeing any of those promises in, in real form. They were slaves in Egypt, horribly mistreated. We read that Verse 26, by faith, Moses chose the reproach of Christ. If you ever just bored this week, just try to understand that verse. Christ is nowhere close to being on the scene yet. What could it mean that Moses chose the reproach of Christ? Well, in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses went to Egypt, he's told that the people of Israel to whom he goes, Israel is my son, God said. Israel is my firstborn. Who's the true firstborn? Christ. And, and in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, he came to know all of our afflictions, Isaiah says, of the promised servant and son. And so you have very clearly that all the affliction that God's people knew, it was as if they were the afflictions of Christ. And then all the afflictions that Christ knew was as if they were the afflictions of all of his people. And so therefore, Moses chose the, chose the affliction of Christ rather than the pleasures of this earth. We read on, verse 27, by faith Moses left Egypt. Why? Well, not because he was scared of Pharaoh, don't let that be the story that's passed down in the history books. Moses left Egypt because he had fear for the invisible king. He had awe and worship for the one he couldn't see. 
That's what the text says to us. Then we read that by faith, Moses kept the Passover and he instituted it for generations after him. The Passover was, obviously, shed the blood of the Passover lamb and put the blood over your doorpost. For when I come, if you don't have the blood of the sacrificial lamb over your doorpost, I will take your firstborn. And so the trust that Moses had, he took what was unseen and it turned it into what was seen because he could see it as though it was real. The stories start to accumulate in verse 29 and we won't unpack all of them, but if you're reading that part of the, of the chapter, it's quite, it's quite impressive. It goes through basically all of the biblical narrative and just lobs different examples to us, even some names, to make the case that God's people take God at his word and they act accordingly. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. That's a risk. They took God at his word. They marched around the walls of Jericho. That's just weird. They took God at his word. Rahab harbored spies. What personal danger? She took God at his word. And the text just goes on. Others conquered kingdoms. Some brought justice. Some survived lions. There's Daniel. Some escaped the sword by faith. Others fell to the sword by faith. Some were made strong out of weakness. Some fought with might and made armies flee from them by faith. Some women received their children from the dead. There are two different mothers in the Old Testament for whom this is a story. Elijah raised one of the children and Elisha raised the other child. By faith, they saw God raise their child from the dead. Some were tortured and refused to be comforted or released. And so they, they turned into martyrs. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Others, they didn't experience such martyrdom. They were just sojourners. They were wanderers in the skin of sheep and goats. They were afflicted. They were destitute. What's the point? All of these took God at his word. That's how they waited. One step at a time. One foot in front of the other, taking God at his word. Some are named. We know that Gideon's mentioned. Samuel's mentioned. David's mentioned. There's a lot that aren't named. Some of our community groups have studied the book of Esther. Esther's not named. Mordecai's not named. Ezra, I was reading this morning of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah is not named. Cyrus, who let God's people go back to the promised land to rebuild their city. Cyrus isn't mentioned in this chapter, but here's a pagan king. He just takes God at his word and acts accordingly. Okay. What was the result of all this? Verse 39, end of the chapter. All of these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Surprise. As glorious as this chapter is, it ends by saying they didn't get what they were waiting on. And then the text says this, since God had provided something better for apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So it's kind of like a hold on, time out, wait, 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 wait. What is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying this. Those who waited with faith will not know, they will not receive the perfect, they will not have all their desires met, they will not know their sins cleansed, they will not know all the threats of the sinful world mitigated, they will not know all of God's rest and righteousness, they will not know all of death being crushed until we know it with them. That's what the author of Hebrews chapter 11 is telling to us. Which means, as we sit here this Sunday, that the first coming of Jesus can't be the thing for which they waited. Because we're still waiting. And so the, the true understanding of Advent isn't celebrate the birth of Jesus to a Virgin Mary. The true meaning of Advent is, is, is one story of rescue and we're waiting for God to finish it. 
Let me ask you, do, do you take God at his word that Jesus will come and you will reign with the people mentioned in chapter 11? As different as all of those saints were and all that they waited on, as different as all of us are and what we are waiting on, do we all take our desires to God and we can almost see him realizing them? Now, here's the way I want to end. If we're waiting and they're still waiting, could we define that reality as like the one big thing? Like what's the big thing we're waiting on? Because in this chapter in and of itself, there's a lot of little things mentioned, aren't there? If it's a big reality that we're going to just say summarizes it all, it has to be so big that it's bigger than a place to find peace, which they were waiting on. It has to be bigger than a new city that would be built for them that they were waiting on. It has to be more than just no sin and no struggle, but they were waiting on that. It has to be more than just no suffering, which they were waiting on, and so are we. So what's the big thing? Well, in verse 6, we're told that the big thing they waited on is, quote, a reward. Do you see that? We wait knowing that God will reward those who seek him. Well, what's the big reward? And here's where I want us to kind of just sit mesmerized together. The reward is the same thing Jesus is waiting for. And what Jesus is waiting for is for us and them to know the unconditional, forever, perfect love of God the Father. See, if you're led into a land that God puts you in, or you're led into a kingdom with no war and no pain, but you don't know the unconditional, forgiving, tender, merciful love of God the Father, then it's still incomplete. And so if we're waiting on what Jesus is waiting for, think with me before he went to, cr to the cross how Jesus prayed in John 17. Jesus prayed these words. He says, Father, I ask that all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. I ask that the glory you've given me and I've given to them that they may be one as we are both one, I and them and you and me. I ask that the world would know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire, here's Jesus' desire. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me will be with me forever where I am to see the glory you've given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, I ask the love by which you love me may be in them and I in them. So what's the reward when it all gets wrapped up in a perfect present for God's people? It's the unconditional love of God the Father that we know forever in his place of peace with his king ruling. And if you take the love away from that, and of course this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, I'm supposed to preach a sermon on love, but let's just be honest, if you take the love away from that, then a righteous king without being a loving, affectionate father is terrifying. A land where there's no more war or pain without knowing that we're loved and we're content to be in the care of him who's loved us forever means we're just bored not having to f fend off attacks. We still don't know what we've longed for the most. And see, God's people would have known that love was what they were waiting on. I read this last week, so I won't read the whole thing, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, remember? Israel, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest and the most powerful. I chose you because I've chosen to love you. The whole book of 1 John, who's loved first? Did you love God first or did he love you? 
These people in Hebrews 11 were waiting by faith, taking God at his word, acting with one foot in front of the other, waiting on the day when they would know his full, forever, perfect love. And I just wanted to kind of not surprise ending with this, but that's the only reward I can think the scriptures allow us to believe that it is. So much so that if we read from Psalm 136, which we won't, but I printed it out for you, that's that great psalm where all of the old covenant is kind of told in story form, but do you know what, what's in every other line? What's, his steadfast love endures forever. And the psalmist tells the story. And, and then we cross the Red Sea. His steadfast love endures forever. And then God pushed out the other kings who were threatening us. His steadfast love endured forever. He created all things. His steadfast love endures forever. The narrative under the story is the steadfast love of the Lord. Here's my humble request or ask of you. Do you, when you give your desires up to God, do you have enough faith as if you can almost see them being realized, but do you realize that underneath that desire is a deeper longing that you have? It's to be loved. I see a lot of people in pain right now. It's actually been a hard week. Lots of stories of pain. Tremendous pain among us. And it's just a powerful thought that underneath it all is the next man in this church that needs to be told, you are loved. Is the next woman in this church needing to be told, you are perfectly loved and you're beautiful. Is the next child who needs to know you are secure and you are loved. It's the next relationship where what's needed the most the absolute most is a Christian to look at another Christian and say, you are unconditionally loved. I'm afraid we forget that. But it's the reward. There's no hope or peace or joy apart from the love of God in the gospel. And so that's why it's the culminating candle at Advent. I'm going to read this closing quote. It was in your email this week. It's on the back of your bulletin. Pastor Bill shared it with us this week from Richard Sibbs in his great work, The Bruised Reed, 1630. The text is, the quote's not about love, but it is about how our identity is unafraid of anything that could come our way if we know that we're held and cared for and loved by God. And I'll close with this. A Christian is an impregnable person. He's a person that can never be conquered. Emmanuel became man to make the church and every Christian to be one with him. Christ's nature is out of danger of all that is hurtful. The sun shall not shine, the wind shall not blow to the church's hurt. How is that possible with all the pain we're experiencing? Because we're loved forever. The church's head ruleth over all things and hath all things in subjection. Therefore, let all the enemies consult together and this king and that power. There's a council in heaven which will disturb and dash all their counsels. Emmanuel in heaven laugheth them to scorn. And as Luther said, shall we weep and cry when God laugheth? If you are loved and you know you are loved, 
then when you are tempted to weep and cry, realize the, the full extent of God's promises given to you in Christ. And faith is actually seeing what you can't see. You are loved, Christian, and I do pray you have a Merry Christmas, and I do pray that more than anything, you both believe that God has perfectly loved you and you will share that love with someone else. Let me pray. Come thou long expected, Jesus, we ask that you, the desire of every nation, the desire of every longing heart would come and come quickly. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, those of us who get caught in performance ruts and we don't love ourselves because we're not good enough. Or we sit under the oppressive thumb of either an employer or maybe a family member or others who just constantly make us feel as though we're not good enough. Lord, would we take you at your word and would it be enough that you love us? Your steadfast love of the Lord will endure forever. And underneath the entire narrative of redemption is your love for your people. That's the great reward. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would know your love. And when we know your love, we would not be so exposed to the fickle nature of our feelings based on how this world loves us or how others love us or how we love ourselves. We would find ourselves to be conquerors. We'd find our faith increasing. We find ourselves to be more faithful husbands and wives and children, parents, workers, friends, because we know we're loved. We thank you for your mercy given to us in Christ and praise in his name. Amen.